Welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, a podcast where college students and faculty come together to talk about mental health, wellness, mentorship, and entrepreneurship. Together, we set and achieve goals for ourselves to get us where we want to be. I am your host, Derek Malinzak, and this is episode 79 of the podcast. And welcome, everybody. Really happy to be back this week in week five. Uh, And so for some veterans that have been around the College Student Success Podcast for a little while, you guys might know I do try and do a goal check-in, usually at the fifth week and at the tenth week of the semester. Uh, I think it's my way of taking, you know, a kind of a long thing, something that's 15 weeks long. Uh, Yours may be more or less um, on a similar time frame as uh, Rutgers is and break it into manageable chunks. And I used to do that uh, sort of at the midpoint and found that that, those chunks were a little too big. (laughs) And also it really interfered with midterm preparation as well because they usually come right at that midpoint as well, hence (laughs) midterm. So this time, uh, and I think I started it last year uh, around this time, I try and do it in thirds so that usually you could take stock after a little over a month and you have not you know reached a point yet where you're at the mid midterm point but this is a good point to be preparing for midterms uh, so what's going on with your goals uh, so i'm going to check in at the end of this uh, episode on my goal a little bit and talk about home exercises uh, but first i have a little bit different of an interview this week uh, so last week was uh, very typical of a college student success in podcast interview, you know, having a college student on, somebody who was in recovery. Again, thought it was really one of the best interviews that I've, I've been uh, fortunate enough to record. And great thanks to Lisa again for coming on and, and being brave in sharing that story. And something about that story when I recorded this episode, or when I recorded, I'm sorry, last week's uh, interview, I did it over the summer, uh, she mentioned electroconvulsive therapy, and she mentioned getting it and it really helping her. And it was something that stuck with me and made me think about wanting to learn more, because it was a uh, technique or treatment that I had not very much familiarity with or experience having worked with people that had had it. So it was it was a surprise to me when she talked about it because it you know it wasn't something that I had known. So I set out to learn some more because I kind of wanted to do a little bit of a follow-up episode because if I knew if I was having trouble or if I didn't know a lot, there was a good chance that students that could potentially benefit didn't know a lot either. So I started looking and I was like, I should be able to find resources, no problem. And I really struggled. (laughs) Um, And I found a large uh, number of people against ECT, and that is discussed in the interview. And we talk about it and and address, you know, some of the, the, um, you know, counterpoints or counter arguments to the benefits uh, of ECT described in the interview. Um, But I had a hard time finding, you know, people that were that are websites or resources dedicated to electroconvulsive therapy. So I finally found an expert, and she is definitely qualifies, I believe, as an expert. Her name is Dr. Sarah Lizenby. And so let's uh, get into the interview. But before I do that, um, I do want to acknowledge that this is uh, a controversial topic. 
And this is probably the most controversial uh, topic I've tackled on the show since it's begun. Um, But I really want to tackle it from an educational standpoint and remove any kind of emotion and remove any kind of stigma that you may have about, you know, what you may have heard about ECT, uh, about movies that may have depicted it, about any kind of preconceived notions of what it might look like. Um, Try and, if you can, just put that on the shelf for the next uh, 25, 30 minutes as you listen to the interview and hear kind of where science has come from a lot of those early depictions, um, where where the stigma, I believe, originates. Uh, So I just want to acknowledge this is controversial, and as such, I did include a disclaimer this week that I don't normally do, but I want to read it. Um, This is information, the following interview. Uh, It's not medical advice, despite coming from a medical doctor. It's meant to be for educational purposes, uh, to give people options in their mental health recovery. Do your own research, and do your due diligence to make informed choices that are best for you and your own recovery. So with that, uh, I do want to welcome Dr. Lizenby to the show. Okay, I am here today with Dr. Sarah Lizenby from the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, Welcome to the show today. Thank you. It's great to be here. I really, really, really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day to uh, come on and have a conversation uh, about ECT, which is uh, probably a bit of a departure from some of the things that we normally talk about here on the College Students Success Podcast. But I think it's an important topic. I'm really glad to have you on. And, And the reason I'm glad is because I found just such a lack of uh, information when when trying to do research on this topic. So I appreciate you coming on today. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and kind of how you came to be a, a researcher in ECT? Sure. So I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a, a medical doctor specialized in, in psychiatry, and I work in uh, research. Uh, so I have been um, faculty member uh, and lab director at uh, research institutions like Columbia University and most recently uh, Duke University. And now I work at the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, throughout my career, I focused on researching safer and better treatments for depression. And I have also uh, continued to practice psychiatry, treating people with a focus on treatment-resistant depression. So the situation where depression persists despite psychotherapy and medication. And so um, the clinical experiences that I've had with how prevalent treatment-resistant depression is uh, really has made, um, uh, motivated my research to try to find safer and better alternatives. And so some of the work that I've conducted as a principal investigator has been on electroconvulsive therapy or ECT and other modifications to try to make this treatment even uh, safer. So this has included doing research funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. uh, And now I work at the NIMH where we support research to improve um, mental health uh, across the lifespan. Okay. So... That is like really, um, and we're going to get into like the the results and the outcomes, I I think a real promising area in terms of treatment for depression. Um, Before we go any further, though, I just want to do kind of a a quick disclaimer for the audience. You know, we do have, you know, a medical doctor on today, but I don't want anyone to construe 
anything about what we talked to today about as medical advice. Uh, this is just uh, educational and information um, for you to make your own decision. Um, so now that we got that out of the way, maybe we could just talk a little bit about what ECT actually is, because I'm sure there's a large number of people in the audience that have heard about it, don't even know what it stands for, uh, and, and kind of have potentially a, like a, a negative stereotypical view of like these like electrodes popping out of your head and, and steam rising from them. So like, can you just kind of talk about like the basics of what it is? Sure. So it's nothing like you just described. Um, so electroconvulsive therapy or ECT is the most effective and rapidly acting treatment that we have to, today for depression. What it is, is it uses electricity to induce a seizure. Uh, but the electricity is given when you're under anesthesia. So you're asleep. So you're in a, um, a procedure room. You may be uh, most likely in a hospital. Uh, and the, your, a um, catheter is put into your vein to give medication that puts you to sleep. And while you're asleep for about maybe 10, 15 minutes, uh, a team of doctors, including a, a psychiatrist, anesthesiologist, and nurses, um, uh, provide a very controlled amount of electricity to the scalp uh, on your head for a few seconds, and that electricity induces a seizure in the brain. Uh, you're asleep. You don't feel anything during the procedure. The seizure lasts no more than uh, a minute or two, and then you wake up in a recovery room, and as the anesthesia is wearing off, the medical personnel is there uh, recovering you. So that's how the ECT procedure is done today. Now, ECT, though, evokes different images because it was first done in the 1930s when it looked very different than it does today. The historical depictions of ECT were, were very different. First of all, they didn't use anesthesia. So you start out being awake and then the, the electrodes are put on your head and electricity is given. Uh, and so today it is, it is very different than it was um, in the early days. Uh, but I think that some of the, the pictures that people imagine about ECT are um, sometimes more influenced by the past than the present. Yeah, definitely. And so just to clarify, so it's done, it, it's, it seems like it's a pretty short procedure, and then the person goes home. There's no need to stay in the hospital, correct? Well, the most common uh, way that ECT is done today is on an outpatient basis, but for many people, they, they may start inpatient, uh, but you, you do need to stay uh, in the procedure area until the anesthesia is worn off uh, and that the medical team has determined that you're, you're ready to go back home. Uh, but it can be an outpatient procedure, so I would say the majority of what is done today is on an outpatient basis. Okay. And approximately how many treatments do people undergo? Like, it's not a one-time thing, I understand. So a, an initial course of ECT typically takes a few weeks. So an average number of treatments would be anywhere between, say, 6 to 12 treatments. We give the treatments three times a week, so that's uh, two to four weeks. Okay. And I know you had mentioned we had had a little prior discussion about there being, like, different types of ECT. Can you go into, like, that a little bit? Sure. So the uh, different types of ECT have to do with how the procedure is done. Now, always anesthesia is used. But when we talk about different types of ECT, we mean 
literally where the electricity is placed. Uh, so the electricity is given with electrodes. They are uh, round metal disks. There's two of them. And depending on where on your head these metal disks are placed, that determines the type of ECT. So if you have one disk on each side of your head, that's called bilateral because it's two sides. If you have one disk, uh, if, if you have both disks mainly on the right side of the head, that's called right unilateral, meaning one side. There are other variations as well. But when you move where the electricity is uh, placed, it dramatically affects the uh, side effects. So in the early days, I'm talking, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, when it was first being used, everyone got the same type of ECT. It was all bilateral. But more modern research showed that when the electrodes were moved to just be on the right side of the head, this is called unilateral, that the side effects went down dramatically. When we talk about side effects from ECT, the most concerning one is memory loss. And when you move from bilateral to unilateral, literally moving the electrodes a few centimeters uh, on the head, this dramatically reduces the degree of memory loss. There are other technical aspects about the treatment besides where the electrodes are placed that also affect memory. This has to do with how long the electricity is given for. So with um, uh, standard brief pulse ECT, each pulse lasts about a millisecond. So very brief amount of electricity, but there's this new form called ultra brief where it's even briefer than one millisecond is about a quarter of a millisecond each pulse. And so these variations, um, when you give less electricity and for a shorter period of time, result in less memory loss. Hmm. Okay. And I would guess that depending on the person's unique case, the decision is made where to place them and, and how long to deliver the electricity. Would that be... Well, the selection, just like with any other part of medicine, figuring out dosage depends on uh, the individual circumstances. And our, our typical approach, my personal approach, is to start with the form of ECT that is the safest. Mm -hmm. And um, if, if it is not adequate, if it's not enough to be effective, then we can switch to a different form of ECT. Now, it's important, although we've already started to talk about side effects, it's important to remember what are the beneficial effects? Why are we doing this? Yeah, let's and talk the, about them. <laughs> so the most, the, the reason why we're doing this, so the beneficial effect is the first thing that I said when we asked what is ECT. It is the most effective and rapidly acting treatment for major depression. And let me break that down a little bit. So most effective. So how effective are medications? Medications may work in, if you look at research studies, uh, maybe from 30 to 50% of the time. Uh, and that's enough to show that they're better than a, a sugar pill or a placebo, or they have real effects. But ECT, if you look at studies on ECT, that works in closer to 80 to 90% of the time. So about uh, three, two or three times more effective than medications. The reason why we use ECT for serious depression is because of the problem of treatment-resistant depression, depression that does not respond to medication. And what we've learned from studies uh, conducted by the National Institute of Mental Health is that when you have 
treatment-resistant depression, or it's also called TRD. Once you've failed to respond to one medication and then you're switched to another, your likelihood of responding uh, is lower. And then you switch to a third and a fourth. And I'll tell you, uh, Derek, it's not uncommon for people who come to see me uh, to, to, show, to tell me that they've been through you know, 10, 15 different medications. Yeah. And that all adds up when you think about giving each medication one month uh, to see if it will work. You begin to look at months, years, uh, sometimes even decades of, of chronic serious depression, which is it's debilitating. Uh, it causes disability. Uh, it makes it hard for people to stay in school, uh, to keep jobs, to function uh, in their families. It's devastating and it's heartbreaking to see depression that carries on that long. And one of the serious concerns about serious depression is suicide. Mm -hmm. And when you feel so much pain for so long and nothing works for you, uh, suicide is a significant um, risk in people with serious depression. And the exciting thing about ECT is that it rapidly resolves the depression and it rapidly resolves the impulses to commit suicide. And in that sense, it can be life-saving. Yeah, and that, that kind of is a good point to just bring up like the reason one of the reason the main reason I, I kind of started looking into finding an expert was because I interviewed uh, a, f a former college student actually a former student of mine and they talked about how it, it essentially you know saved her life and it was something that like in all my years I worked in a decade uh, in community mental health with serious and persistent mental illness very few people I came across very few people that either had it or perhaps as I'm learning maybe just had it and just didn't talk about it um so I'm, I'm it surprises me that the results are that positive given how little it seems to be practiced at least here in New Jersey um is it is it something that's more um sorry is this something more that is uh for different populations or is it is it been shown to be used like kind of all across all types of people well uh you know ect is available to varying degrees across the country and um but i, I want to go back to something that you were saying that given how life-saving it can be you were you were wondering why does it seem to be not as available um and I think that part of it is, even if it's available, uh, there's a, a stigma about it that that is a that can be a barrier to to accessing the treatment and to, to going through to go through the treatment. I mean, many many people are afraid of ECT based on the things that they've read on the internet or, or movies they've seen that are not factual factual depictions of ECT, and these things can coupled with the hopelessness that a person feels when they have depression to begin with, uh, can be barriers that prevent people who really could benefit from the treatment. Uh, it, these barriers prevent them from receiving it. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so let's talk about, you know, stigma is obviously one barrier. Would you say that the side effects we talked, we touched a little bit on it, memory loss being one of them, is that another sort of big barrier, would you say, to accessibility and, and availability? 
Well, the uh, memory loss certainly is a, a factor that affects uh, a person's decision and, you know, their informed uh, decision. Uh, of course, we don't do this without informed consent. And so whenever we're considering ECT for a person, a person's considering whether they want it for themselves, we weigh the risks and benefits. And so that's really been a motivator for my own research has been to do everything we can to reduce the side effects so that people can access the benefits when they need it. And this this has been um, uh, achieved by modifying the procedure, by changing where the electrodes are placed on the head, by uh, shortening and reducing the amount of electricity needed. We are also doing research with experimental forms of seizure therapy where we use magnetic stimulation to induce the seizure instead of ECT. These are all ways to try to uh, improve that risk-benefit ratio by reducing the risks. Wow. Okay. And are there any other major side effects beyond memory loss that the, the audience should be aware of? Well, there are, um, you can have a um, headache, you can have some uh, muscle soreness. Uh, it is general anesthesia, so general anesthesia carries risks. Uh, yeah. These are generally low, but um, you know, before a person has ECT, they, they go through a medical evaluation uh, and evaluation for anesthesia uh, safety. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are medical evaluations. Sometimes it involves blood tests and a medical history to and physical exam to be sure that uh, they don't have any underlying medical conditions that would put them at more risk. Specifically, heart disease, if a person has had a recent heart attack or myocardial infarction. Also, uh, cerebrovascular disease, if a person has had a recent stroke or if they have a tumor uh, in the brain that uh, uh, could uh, affect the safety of ECT. So we screen for all of those factors mm -hmm. uh, so that we can be sure that the risk-benefit ratio is, is right for the person. Okay. And we talked about it being primarily used for treatment-resistant depression. Are there any other um, diagnoses that ICT is being used for? Yes, uh, bipolar disorder. So bipolar disorder, which was also called manic depression. In bipolar disorder, you have depressive episodes, but then you also have periods of time where uh, your mood is too high, where you are uh, showing poor judgment. You may be able to go without sleep. Uh, you get uh, sometimes even people lose touch with reality. They may hear voices. They may have beliefs that aren't true. And uh, bipolar disorder can be very disabling and, and, and dangerous. Um, people, people with bipolar disorder are also at a higher risk of suicide and um, uh, a higher risk for also having other conditions like, like substance use disorders. So it's a really serious condition. And the good news is that ECT works in treating depression in people with bi bipolar disorder, and it can also also treat the mania, the highs that people have. Now, medications are the first-line treatment for bipolar disorder, and we have some very good ones, but just like with treatment-resistant depression, when a person with bipolar disorder has a condition that is not responding to medication, ECT can really be uh, an effective treatment. There are other conditions. Uh, the depression and bipolar are probably the most frequent reasons for ECT. There are other conditions, though, that do show improvement. Um, for example, schizophrenia. It's not first-line treatment for schizophrenia, but in people with schizophrenia who have severe illness that's not responding to medications, sometimes ECT can be helpful there as well. Um, there are other, I, I should mention one other condition that is, that is a life-threatening condition that ECT dramatically 
and rapidly resolves. And that's a condition called catatonia. Catatonia uh, is a condition where a person is so severely ill that they cannot speak and they cannot move. And without treatment, catatonia can be fatal. It is a serious, serious condition. It can be a complication of severe mood disorder and, and or schizophrenia. And people with catatonia show very rapid and dramatic uh, improvement when they get ECT. In fact, it was when I was a medical student, when I uh, saw my first case of ECT, it was a person with catatonia. And the, you know, the morning before the treatment, she couldn't speak, she couldn't move. She it was like she was a statue, like frozen. But after the ECT, she was able to speak and she gradually got better with, with more treatments. So it, it really can be um, life-saving and, and helpful in a range of conditions. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, so just one more thing before we get into the stigma stuff, I wanted to clarify too, like generally speaking, it, it, despite its, um, its efficacy, it's still not a first line treatment recommendation. They do, doctors still recommend trying medications and other forms of treatment before getting to, uh, something like ECT, correct? So it is usually medications and, and therapy first. There's mm -hmm. certain situations where ECT would be used earlier in the course of illness, and that would be if um, the medications were not safe because mm -hmm. of a medical medical conditions that the person has, or if they if the person has a condition that is so severe that without rapid improvement, uh, it can be fatal. And catatonia is is one of those examples. Also, severe um, suicidal. Um, ideation or a person who has, a, has a, had a serious suicide attempt. These are situations or uh, a condition called psychotic depression where the depression is so severe that you're actually hearing voices and sometimes these voices uh, urge you to hurt yourself. These are serious uh, dangerous conditions that are rapidly resolved with ECT. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about some of the, the misconceptions and the stigma. One thing I saw just in, in, again, kind of doing my research and, and looking, I, I expected to be kind of flooded with, you know, either story like advocates or, or experts or, you know, people that run blogs. And, and instead, I found a lot of um, anti. Um, we'll get to that in a second. But some of the, the stuff that I'd uh, you know, was uh, that ECT causes brain damage and or is a form of traumatic brain injury. Um, and you had said earlier that it, that it, you basically invoke a seizure and that might kind of make people feel a little uneasy. Can you explain that or kind of explain that it's not, I, I assume that it's not a, a form of brain damage, but can you kind of clarify that? There is no medical evidence that modern ECT induces brain damage. We have studied this. Other groups have studied this. We've published this uh, in peer-reviewed journals uh, using models, uh, animal models, where high doses of ECT were given and the brains were examined under a microscope with modern neuropathological techniques to measure any signs of damage. Uh, and there are not signs of damage in those types of studies. In uh, clinical samples with people receiving ECT, um, in the human studies we do imaging, so non-invasive um, imaging of the brain using magnetic resonance imaging before and after the ECT. This has not shown any 
sign of brain damage. Now, people find this confusing because they say, well, there's memory loss, so that means there's brain damage. Well, in fact, uh, memory loss uh, does not mean that there is brain structural brain damage. It does mean that there's a change in the function of brain areas involved in memory, but a change in function does not mean that there that there's a permanent brain injury. So that's one part that has been confusing to people. Mm -hmm. The other thing is when you're trying to learn about the medical facts about ECT, uh, it can be a, a challenge for your average person trying to, to search the web uh, because you will be flooded with information. And just because it's on the Internet does not mean it's true. Mm -hmm. The trusted sources for medical information about the safety and efficacy of ECT uh, are the medical literature. And uh, you can find this at PubMed.gov, which, uh, which is the, the U.S. Uh, National Library of Medicine at the National Institute of Health provides um, publicly available um, uh, literature searches where you can search the medical literature about the safety and efficacy of ECT. Yeah, and I will definitely include uh, that link in today's show notes as well as the links to some studies you had sent me in, in preparation for this interview. Appreciate that. So why do you think it is, Dr. Lizenby? Why do you think there's such a, a vocal anti ECT minority? And has it always been like this? Because I know you've been studying this a while. So not only is there a, a vocal anti-ECT uh, minority, there's a vocal anti-psychiatry movement. So psychiatry, as far as I know, is the only field of medicine that has its own anti-movement. I mean, could you imagine an anti-cardiology movement or an anti-oncology movement. It'd be unheard of, right? You know, why would you even think of forming such a thing? But there is an anti-psychiatry movement. And that movement um, has uh, promulgated um, messages that are not consistent with the medical literature that we've just been discussing. And those messages that are not factual uh, can be damaging, can contribute to stigma, and can lead people who are who are truly suffering, who truly have a medical need to receive treatment. It can lead them to to be afraid of the very thing that uh, could save their lives. And why does this exist? I I frankly don't understand it. Of course, I'm a psychiatrist, so why would I understand anti psychiatry? Um, I I at, at at the bottom of this, I'm, I'm really a, a physician. And, you know, we're about trying to figure out how we can alle alleviate suffering. And I will tell you, uh, if, if you've met um, family members or, or friends who've had severe depression, or if, if you yourself listening have had severe depression, um, don't let anyone tell you that it's not real. Uh, and the anti-psychiatry movement says, oh, it's not real, and you don't need treatment. Um, you know, don't, that's, uh, th that's baloney. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's because I knew, you know, and interviewed the student that I have you here today because, you know, she was so profoundly affected, you know, uh, and did, you know, talk about it. So another, you know, kind of, uh, argument I hear from this minority is is like this idea that like people that there is an informed consent you know that people are so it's in such a, a stupor or from the memory loss that they um, uh, they allow it to you know continue on uh, can you speak to that a little bit just like any other medical procedure we 
obtain informed, informed consent before we do ECT. And informed consent is not just signing a form. It, it is a process in which we educate the person about their condition, about the reason why ECT is being recommended for them, about in great detail all of the risks and possible benefits about the alternatives to treatment. So the informed consent process is something we take very seriously and we supplement it by providing educational materials for the person considering ECT and their, their family, their loved ones, uh, so that they can be fully informed. Now, in what conditions or situations um, is that process not used? If the person, let's say, had catatonia, as I was just describing, in catatonia, you are in, it's a medical emergency. You cannot speak, you cannot talk. Uh, and in that situation, there, depending on the laws of the state, there may be substituted consent or it may require a court to evaluate uh, and a court order before the ECT can be given. And so uh, in, uh, so we do follow the standard procedures for informed consent, just like any other medical procedure. And it is, it's, I think, a frequent misconception that for some reason with ECT that we don't do it, we actually do. And it's, some, it's part of our practice guidelines. It's part of how we're trained when we are uh, trained to be ECT psychiatrists. And, and it is the professional standard to obtain informed consent before doing the treatment. Okay. And so I imagine too, like before you even get to the point where somebody says like, I want this, like that you would support like this idea of, uh, I, I've discussed it with other guests, this uh, shared decision-making or some people call it supported decision-making where the doctor works with the person to, to jointly kind of come to the decision to figure out what the best treatment would be or to involve other, you know, people close to them in the, in, because it's quite an important decision. I, um, so do you have any feelings about that or is that something that you're, that you do what guys do? I always ask the person, um, who is close to you? Who would you, who would you like to join in this conversation? And uh, frequently it's um, a significant other or, or, or spouse or family member. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, it, it's an opportunity not only to um, provide more education for the person and the, the people who are important in their lives, uh, not only about the, about the ECT, but about the condition that the ECT is being recommended for. You know, I think it, it is helpful for families to understand at a medical level what depression is what and what to expect and how they can support their loved one through this process, uh, both in managing the illness uh, as well as in um, managing the, the, the treatment and um, working together towards the best outcome. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate uh, you coming on today. Um, in closing, I wondered if you just had any kind of last parting words for, um, you know, the, the, the population of people that are listening today, which would be college students that might be dealing with mental health issues right now. Um, any, any last words? Sure. So, um, you know, I would just say that um, you don't have to suffer in silence if you are experiencing depression reach out for help. And there is help available on campuses and elsewhere. Talk to your doctor, talk to your campus uh, mental health uh, providers who can help evaluate what is going to be helpful for you, whether it's therapy, whether it's medication. And in some cases, if it turns out to be ECT, 
be reassured that it's not what you've read about uh, in the history books or what you've seen in the movies. It's a controlled medical procedure that could really be um, transformative and offer hope. Uh, you know, and I would what I say to people who who say that they're afraid of ECT, I say, well, we should be afraid of severe depression. When it goes without treatment, it can really be a source of tremendous suffering. And treatments like ECT or other treatments can be the light at the end of the tunnel, getting a person uh, a new lease on life so that they can get their depression under, under control and go on with their lives. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to end. And uh, again, this is just uh, hopefully some information to kind of you know bring this to to light for some people that may have not you know known about this and i am including a a bunch of um web resources and articles and studies uh in the show notes today i'll probably have a larger amount than i normally do for uh you know interviews but uh all coming from dr lisenby so thank you so much for coming on today i appreciate it you're very welcome thank you for having me okay we're back and uh I really do urge people that, you know, got something out of this that may be, you know, interested in reading more to check out the plethora of resources that are available uh, in the show notes of today's episode. I've enclosed, what is it, uh, seven or eight research studies published by NIH, National Institute of Health, um, and a number of more practical resources, um, and a brief overview Um, some videos, uh, some more mainstream stuff, you know, a a clip from CBS this morning, you know, stuff that kind of, I think, legitimizes a bit in terms of like being um, larger scale entities that have sort of addressed it. Um, And I also think in particular that the NAMI fact sheet uh, is pretty helpful as well. And you think about NAMI as having its roots started with um, family members of those uh, troubled by mental illness. Um, it is, you know, encouraging, at least to me, to see that they've sort of um, at least taken the time to give people um, as, as objective as uh, in information and overview as they can with the fact sheet. So that is included in the show notes. Um, and in closing, let's talk a little bit about our goals, right? So this week, your home exercise isn't to go get ECT, (laughs) Um, but to kind of dig a little deeper into your goal in terms of what's coming up, what you have left to achieve, and do research. Uh, Do some research related to your goal this week. Uh, What do you need to learn more about in order to work more efficiently, uh, potentially save time or money, and or become more effective at achieving your goal? There's always something we can learn that can help. So... Uh, dig deep, you know, use your Google Foo, um, check if it's more of a uh, scientific question. I urge you to read publications, read journals. You know, the reason why journals are important is because they're peer-reviewed, and that means that people that are on kind of a similar um, experiential level, uh, people that are involved in similar, you know, um, specialty sciences, review these articles before they're published, 
and, you know, make recommendations to the editor like, you know, this is complete bullshit <laughs> or, you know, this is based on what I know about the science, you know, this is legitimate, you know, um, or and they also make recommendations on how to present, you know, the, the research as well. So it's not it's not very easy to get into these, you know, peer reviewed uh, journals and have these things published. Um, so I urge you to check that stuff out. And I also urge you to check out, you know, some of the other, you know, kind of, like I said, more practical resources. Um, but what do you need? Um, so if there's something that can help you, you know, you might be able to get away with just a simple Google search. Um, you know, so Wikipedia, despite it being, you know, shit on for being, you know, not an academic resource, you know, anyone that's tried to reference Wikipedia in their research papers probably has learned this. Um, but it's incredibly helpful for big picture stuff um, because it is so well monitored by, you know, it's so well read. It's like one of the most popular websites on the internet. Um, you know, when misinformation gets in there, it's often corrected very quickly. Um, because they have people that, you know, just know this stuff and read it and have an investment in seeing, you know, accuracy. But it's not the best for, you know, finer, um, finer points or more specific info. Um, but, you know, there's just so many great learning tools out there. You know, YouTube is just an amazing learning tool. Um, the podcast directory, you know, to find out, you know, to find experts in literally any topic you could possibly, you know, be interested in within reason. <laughs> um, so go out there, do your research. Don't be limited to just Google. You know, think about other resources that might be able to get you the research uh, and information you might need, including, oh my God, talking to people, <laughs> um, finding experts and making an appointment to actually speak with them in person uh, has so much more of an impact in terms of um, what you can learn and potentially how people can help. So don't rule out, you know, live conversation, whether it be on the phone or in person. Uh, so get on that research, kids. Um, so I checked in on my goal this past week because it was uh, conveniently the end of the month. And that's how they sort of uh, measure. It's an easy way to measure uh, downloads on a monthly basis. So I'm interested in, in doubling my downloads. Uh, that's what I'd like to do. Um, so what I did to kind of get a, this is a, an easy goal for me to operationalize or, you know, it's very measurable for me compared to other goals in the past or, you know, any goals that you guys might have. It's very hard to measure a goal like, oh, I want to, you know, feel less depressed. Um, that's really hard to measure, you know, so at the end, you, you might have a hard time figuring out if you actually achieve that goal. But if somebody says, I want to lose 20 pounds, or I want to reduce my cigarette intake from a pack a day to uh, a quarter of a pack a day, or I want to double my downloads, you know, those are very measurable type of goals. It's very easy to see and note progress. That's why I loved doing occupational therapy, um, because it was so much easier. You know, you could check, you know, um, flexibility and strength and, you know, how many degrees you could, um, you know, bend your joints. And um, it was so easy to kind of be able to see the progress compared to, um, you know, the the, the work I used to do and, you know, teach people about in terms of like goal planning for mental health symptoms. So I feel you people out there that might have a goal like that. And, you know, I urge you to try and make it as measurable as you can. 
Um, so I did. So what I did was I took my average. I took the last three months of downloads and I averaged them, and I got that number. And then I compared it to this past month, September. So the first month of you know really doing the podcast. And so I increased. Uh, it was about eight percent. Eight. Uh, eight zero eight. So. I have a ways to go. <laughs> uh, I have a ways to go to get to, basically if I want to double it, I have to get to 100%, and that would be, uh, you know, doubling of the um, number. So, uh, and it's, you know, just because I've made it 8% doesn't mean I can't go back to my, you know, my average number from over the summer next month. So that's entirely possible too. That would be quite embarrassing if I had to report that. So that alone should motivate me to work on my goal this week in terms of doing some more research on how to boost, uh, you know, podcast listenership. So hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed this week. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to come at you with next week. I have a couple of uh, interviews banked. I have a couple more scheduled. Uh, I might just drop in and do something on my own. I'm not sure, but, uh, you can be sure that I will be back and, uh, we'll be continuing to tackle that goal that you're working on. We'll be continuing to talk about mental health, entrepreneurship, wellness, mentorship, all that kind of shit. (laughs) All right, guys, have a great week. Take care. Peace.